Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. I hope you had an awesome day yesterday. You know, it was Thursday. It's that day right before TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. And I tell you what, for the last few years, I've been living like every day's been Friday. Uh, not because I don't work, but because I have the privilege, and it truly is a privilege. It's hard work, but it's a privilege to work from home. Now, this year has been a little bit more strenuous because I've been on the road so much, and it has just been nonstop. At the end of the month, I go back on the road. We'll be going to North Carolina for three or four days, then coming back home and heading to New Orleans uh, for the Plexus International Convention, where I will be speaking uh, three different times this year. It's exciting to watch what that little company has done. And it's amazing because my family gets to go a lot of the times with me. We have a wonderful time. My wife works from home. And I was reading, as I was reading Joel's book, Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders, I got to thinking, how does this apply in my life? Because I'm a work-at-home dad. I don't have employees out there. Now, I have my business partners, and, and I have at least one of my boys that works very, very close with me, and I've got the rest of my family that's here. And I thought, you know, that's the key is how do I interact and how do my family interact with me? They are really my team members, not my employees, but my team members. And I thought, man, this is just cool as I as I find ways to apply it. And today we're in the first principle, patience. Have self-control in difficult situations Truett Cathy, I said this yesterday, I think, you don't have to make headlines to make a difference. And Joel starts off, it's interesting in this chapter, he says, patience is first mentioned, or patience is mentioned first for a reason, as the attribute of human character. Patience is genuinely underappreciated and undervalued. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 starts off with, love is patient. I thought about that, not just in my business life, but my personal life. And, and, I, and I tell you what, it, it, my, I wish you guys could have met my dad when he was, when he was a rocking dude working. All, I mean, I can remember, I can remember the duck tail when, when, when I was young, and I remember as he went to the flat top again after getting out of the service, and, and he's just hell on wheels. And when, you, when you'd meet him in public... Especially in the early days, I mean, you know, he didn't cuss like a sailor. He cussed like an Air Force dude, and, and I mean, he got in right at the beginning, right when the Air Force was first being established. So, you know, he was kind of the pioneer area over there. But as I was growing up as a kid, before we, we really got to go into the church and, and really changing lives, I mean, I learned most of my vocabulary from my dad. And life was different than it was as a teenager. So when you met him, you would think he was just one mean SOB, and he was. But the one thing that he always had was this soft spot for my mom. When nobody else was patient with her, because she'd have these little idiosyncrasies, she's just an OCD-type girl, he always had patience. Every now and then, just like all men, he'd mouth off or yell and stuff, but he always had patience. And as I was reading this, I thought, man, my dad taught me that. And that was pretty cool. 
But how do you apply that in context to a working relationship? Joel starts this off with a story. I love books like this because I can share a little bit of a story here, and we can apply it to our own lives. Listen to this. He says, I was still asleep on Easter Sunday, 1999, when my cell phone jolted me awake. It was my boss, the CEO of Saab Worldwide, calling me from Trollhättan, Sweden. I can't even say it right. And even my wife could tell from the way I held the phone an inch from my ear that he wasn't calling to wish me a pleasant holiday. He was so angry with our sales numbers that he wanted me to fly to Trollhättan that very evening for a discussion. This meant a red-eye flight with a meeting Monday morning at 3 a.m. Eastern Time. Not exactly what I was picturing for my Easter day. Three years earlier, I'd been promoted to president and CEO of Saab North America. My prior contribution to the successful startup of the Saturn Corporation had helped me land that position at only the age of 36. At that time, Saturn was known for excellent marketing and outstanding dealership relations, both of which were attributes Saab lacked. At the time, General Motors owned half of Saab, so I was moved from Saturn to Saab in order to bring a new direction with leadership. With the cooperation of a strong team around me, Saab North America soon turned the corner, flipping from a loss of $50 million in '95 to a profit of $10 million two years later. My team and I had made some tough decisions about vehicle models, marketing, dealer count, and personnel, but we were headed in the right direction. However, now this is the interesting part, all that good stuff. However, in the first quarter of 99, product shortages and shipping issues dented our sales, and we missed our numbers by 20%. I knew the problem was an anomaly and not a representative of the position or the direction that North America was moving. As the most senior executive on the continent, I didn't have to worry about an angry boss storming into my office and demanding to know why I hadn't met my numbers. Instead, he summons me to his continent. So as I threw clothes and toiletries into my carry-on bag, angry, I began, anger just began to well up inside of me. I could scarcely believe I was being forced to drop everything and fly to Sweden, especially when doing so would have do nothing to boost our sales performance. Now, here's, here's the interesting part. Joel goes on, he says this. When I arrived in Sweden, I felt like a naughty schoolboy being called to the principal's office. They expected me to take my punishment on the very public stage of our global corporate headquarters, in front of all my counterparts from around the world, as well as top management in Sweden. Our CFO trashed my single quarter of missed sales figures. He was a brash American who seemed to relish the opportunity to let me know exactly how worthless. Now, I don't know if he meant brash American or brash Englishman there, because usually he would just say brash since he's American too. But anyway, let's go on. There was no talk of causes or solutions, just accusations and belittling commentary. Joe says, had my company really spent $10,000 in airfare for me to fly on a red-eye clear across the Atlantic Ocean just for this? I was totally and utterly humiliated. As I sat stone-faced in that boardroom, I asked myself, five of the last quarters we've set sales records, and this is the treatment we deserve? 
The urge to shoot back a few choice comments about supply shortages and manufacturing was almost irresistible. Somehow I mustered up enough patience to respond in a controlled manner, showing how much respect I felt. Or maybe I just had a boatload of jet lag. Either way, I was grateful the situation didn't escalate. Yet, there is one unforgettable aspect of that experience that changed my leadership style for good. From that moment forward, I determined never to publicly abolish people in the way that I had been diminished or the way that I felt I'd been diminished and to mess with their dignity. I mentioned my dad early on for a specific purpose. My dad always gave my mom that patience Always gave my mom plenty of leeway. He wasn't that way with my little brother and I. Matter of fact, my friends were 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 really scared of him. It was it was humorous, but I can remember many a times as a youngster, and I think part of this was the era, but part of it was just my dad. This is the way his dad was, and his dad before him, and this is the way he was. If we did something then we would get taken down right in public. And I can remember several times when we were doing things we shouldn't have been doing, so don't get me wrong here, that he would raise his voice in public at us, spank our butts in public. Take I remember once he took his belt off in church and just whipped our butts. It was embarrassing. Now, here's what it did do. My pain tolerance is through the freaking roof because the last thing I was going to do is cry in public. But I knew how Joel felt. And it was because of, of the way my dad disciplined me. And, and like I said, I, 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 mean, I, was, I was doing things I needed my butt busted for. But what I learned is that I never wanted to embarrass my kids in public. I also knew because I, I had felt that humiliation that I've never once called down my employees or my team members publicly. Joel didn't learn this until he was adult, 36 years old. I learned that it didn't work at a very, very young age. See, patience is something that you have to work through. Don't get me wrong. There are times in work situations where calling down an individual or a team with respect in public holds them accountable. But what you have to make sure that you're doing is building what I call and what Joel calls an emotional bank account. I learned it from from John Maxwell. I'm not sure where Joel you learned it from. But see, I learned early on I need to be adding to people's emotional banks so that down the road, when I do need to discipline, I can discipline out of love. Joel writes this. When you lead with patience, you're able to lead without sacrificing performance or accountability. See, my drill instructors used to do that. They would call us down when we did something wrong. But they called us down together. So we were all on the same level. And then they would raise us back up together. They would push us through the envelope. J. 
Joel writes it this way. Whenever possible, reprimand should be given in private, and it should be given in a way that maintains a person's dignity. When we admonish our employees in private and in a patient, respectful manner, we go a long ways towards ensuring our employees remain motivated and continue to grow. See, as business leaders, we can never forget the necessary, the necessity of calling somebody on the carpet and holding them accountable. But when you lead with love, you do it in a way that's respectful. It doesn't mean that you're soft. You don't let people get away with crap. But you use patience and you use respect. In other words, you do it with the golden rule in mind. You treat people the way you want to be treated. See, if we want our goal to be larger numbers, larger volumes, more recruiting, whatever the case may be, then you have to build loyalty. You've got to make sure it's a place that people want to work. So you train your people right. Praise publicly. Reprimand privately. And even if you have to reprimand in other in front of other peers, it still needs to be in a private setting, not out where your customers and everybody else is going to see it. And here's another thing. Part of being patient means that you're praising people along the way. But you don't do it in cliches. See, Joel writes this. He says, just as leading with love requires patient abonishment, it also requires patient praise. But now listen to this. However, for praise to be effective, it needs to be delivered by a leader who is patient enough to observe what his or his team has actually been doing and wait for the right moment to deliver the assessment. And it happens that way. Joel shares another story. He said, It was a brisk and beautiful April morning, and I was nervous, more nervous than I'd ever been. This would be my first day on the job as the new chairman of the Hershen Family Entertainment, and Jack was going to introduce me to some of the key leaders in Silver Dollar City. There was nothing unusual about feeling nervous about one's day on the job, but mine was way beyond the usual. I would be the first person ever to take over the helm of chairman who was not a family member. I felt like an uncoordinated fifth grader. Replacing Jack was a business was the business equivalent to leading the UCLA basketball team the year after John Wooten had retired as the most successful college basketball coach in history. I wondered if I could do it. Would they follow me? Would they listen? Well, here's what happened. When we ended our tour, I was introduced to Nancy, Jack's longtime executive assistant. Her last name wasn't Hershen, but she'd been like a member of the family and I'd been and had been Jack's loyal assistant for many years. When Nancy met me, she did her best to smile and relax, but I could tell she was nervous, or at least unsettled. We sat in Jack's office and made small talk about our backgrounds and our family. However, as we began to talk about her responsibilities, her lower lip started to tremble and her eyes welled up with tears. Not because not, not because of me, but because of the fact Jack was stepping down and it was finally becoming real to her. 
I understand she wasn't reacting to me per se, but my fears were reinforced, and I began to wonder if my self-doubt was going to be a permanent fixture on my new job. But that isn't what happened. See, what Jack did in front of everybody was communicate his unwavering support by saying, the most important thing to me about Joel is his values. His beliefs and his leadership style are exactly in line with what we want as the chairman of this company. He understands our culture, and he wants to protect and grow it. There is nobody else I considered for this responsibility. Joel was my first choice. I know that he is God's man for the job. See, there wasn't any, he's going to do a great job, we're all rooting for him, we think it's going to be great. The cliches that we get, I hate that. I hate network marketing leaders who who stand in the front of the room and, and, and make flippant small talk about recognition when it should go deep. I remember getting a phone call one day by Bill Stewart out of Dallas, or actually out of Lubbock, Texas. Troy, I know money's tight. You and Paige are just starting out. But you've won some awards, and I need you to come down here, so I'm going to be paying for your hotel room. If you can just muster up enough money for gas, I'm going to cover your food, and I'm going to cover your hotel. I was blown away. Here's a guy that's been making a million a year for 30 years, and he's calling me just a, a small... Primerica Financial Service rep, not even hardly a sales leader. Paige and I found the money. I think her dad loaned it to us to drive down. and There in the room with Dalton, our baby, we were awarded as the number one part-time distributors in the Lubbock, organi- I mean, in the Stewart organization, which which had hundreds of thousands of part-time and full-time Primerica reps. And in a five-state area of Missouri, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, that area, we had done more than any other part-time person that was there. And Bill went through exactly what we had done, and he, he knew about our family, and he knew about some of the struggles we were going through as a young couple. And he gave us our support. And him and Sarah, I'll never forget that. See, that's the kind of leader that has patience. It was through his love and through his patience and through his leadership that we went on to to make a really nice long-term full-time income in that company and was able to, to go on and move on to another company and so forth and but it was that early confidence that he gave and that early love that he gave in recognition and praising. And that's what you have to do. You should be praising people at every level. You should be leading with love. See, that's the name of the game. And that's what we have to do if we're going to take our business, if we're going to take our lives to that next level. See, all of a sudden, Joel's confidence shot through the roof because Jack said publicly, and it was the first time he'd even said it to him, I know Joel is the right guy. He's got what it takes. He's going to bring a lot of ideas to the table. I'm excited to see what he's got for us. 
See, to be a truly effective praise, it needs to be legitimate and it needs to be pointed. It needs to come at the right time. Sometimes you're going to have to abolish people. And here's something that I learned a long time ago. And this is what you need to do. And you can write this down. This isn't in Joel's book. This is a... When you've got to call somebody on the carpet, I call it a sandwich approach. And, and it's, you start with something sweet. And, and, and I'm, going to use a, I'm going to use a word picture here so that you understand. You, 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 it's kind of like putting peanut butter on a piece of bread. And you, you got the bread and you put peanut butter on there. It's got some sweet. It's going to be good. It's going to be a little salty, but you love it, you know. You put that peanut butter on there. Then you're going to have to get a little. You're going to have to get a little sour, okay? And and when you get a little sour, it's kind of like a dill pickle that you're going to put on that peanut butter sandwich. And that's where you got to call them down a little bit, and you got to you got to get critical, and you got to hold them accountable, and you got to tell them what you got to do. But then on that other part of that bread, you're going to, you're going to spread some more peanut butter. You're going to put some jelly on it, maybe if you're you're like me. And you're going to finish that conversation praising them again with specific praise. Recognizing them for how good and what they do. That's the way you've got to do it. Joel had a situation after he took over as CEO of the company. Where one of the, one of the parks was just failing bad. He knew it wasn't a long-term deal. He just knew that they had a young team in place. But what had happened was, instead of that young team facing the fact they had issues, they had become overwhelmed, and they were just trying to cover up, and, and so they dropped what they expected their, their outcome to be, to try to cover it and make it not look so bad. Jack sat him down on the table. And he said, look, we got an issue here, and here's how we're going to take it. We're going to roll through this. You guys aren't ever going to try to cover up again. You're going to do what needs to be done. You're going to stay on top of it. You're going to sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed, but you're not going to cover up. You guys are better leaders than that. I know for a fact that you guys can pull this off and you can make this park not only profitable, but one of the biggest and the best and bring in the right numbers all the time, not sacrificing our employees or the experience of our customers. He did it with respect. He did it with love. And a year later, when he was sitting down with the top general manager of the park, he said it was amazing because he said, I looked over and the, and the man sat there for a minute and he said, we remember our talk. He goes, afterwards the team said, you know, that's the most stern we've ever seen Joel talk to us. And a year later, the numbers were where they needed to be. The management team had grown. Things had gone good. See, when you lead with love, it's amazing. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Gettysburg in 1993, but Joel shares a little bit of story here that is, you got to go buy the, I mean, go rent the movie, you don't got to buy it, but he, it came to a part where the Battle of Gettysburg and General Robert E. Lee had to call in Jeb Stewart, 
because Jeb hadn't been where he was supposed to be. He was in charge of the cavalry. He said, General Stewart, your mission was to free this army from the enemy's cavalry and to report any movement by the enemy's main body. That mission was not fulfilled. You left here with no word of your movement or the movement of the enemy for several days. Meanwhile, we were engaged here, drawn into battle without adequate knowledge of the enemy's strength or position, without knowledge of the ground. Sir, it was only by God's grace that we did, meet, did not meet disaster here. Lee continued with passion and conviction, but without malice. Perhaps I did not make myself clear. Well, sir, this must be very clear. You, sir, with your cavalry are the eyes of this army, and without your cavalry, we are, we are made blind. And that has already happened once, and it must never happen again. So far, Lee was in his rights as a leader. But what happened next shows the sort of long-term leadership vision that Robert E. Lee had. As Stewart began to offer a resignation of his post, Lee cut him off. There's no time for that. There is just no time. Then Lee walked over and put his arm on Stewart's shoulders. There's another fight coming tomorrow, and we need you. You must take what I have told you, learn from it, and as a man does, do it. There has been a mistake. It will not happen again. I know your quality. You are one of the finest cavalry officers I've ever known. Your service to this army here has been invaluable. Now let us speak no more of this. The matter is concluded. Good night, General. See, if you're doing it right, you can call your people down. You can do it respectfully. They will listen to what you have to say, and they will go out there, and they will fight for you harder than they ever had before. I watched Art Williams do this over and over. As we leave here this morning, as you go into the weekend, here are the things I want you to remember. You abonish in private whenever possible. You be stern, but you don't act with malice. You don't embarrass them. You don't belittle them. That's for assholes, and you don't do that. Sorry about that if I offend anybody, but that's just the way it is. You be specific. You get people back on the horse with pointed praise. So if they're pointed in the same direction you are, and they're going to go win the big picture, and you always move on without holding a grudge. See, it isn't how, this isn't how we're all treated but it's the way we should be treated. Because when you lead by the golden rule, when you lead with love, I guarantee you, just like Joel writes here, you will lead a bigger and better team. The reason I've been able to work from home the majority of my adult life is because I learned as a teenager, I learned as an adolescent, 90. that I did not like being embarrassed. I did not like being belittled. I don't like it to this day. And the majority of the fights that I've ever been in physically, whether it was in school or in public as an adult, is when I've seen people who are belittling other people. And I've stepped in because I know with empathy what that feels like. And that's how you need to lead your team. Monday, we will be here again on the second principle of the seven timeless principles of effective leaders, kind. Show encouragement and enthusiasm. I'm telling you what, guys, get on the call. Get your teams on this call. The information we're sharing, go buy Love Works by Joel Mamby, M-A-N-B-Y. Phenomenal book. There's no, I repeat, no Aces Radio Live tonight. 
If you need more of some rock-solid positive radio, go to the Home Business Radio Network. That's homebusinessradionetwork.com. We have 40 different trainers, speakers, teachers, along with some of the greatest pop music in history playing on our new network. You can listen to me live over there as the news director and the host of the Beachside CEO. Folks, have an awesome weekend. Be back here Monday morning on realmentorsradio.com.